Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. Today's episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money around the world, which is huge for travelers. I've been a customer and a fan for 10 years. The Wise account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, and they do it all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This service has been so critical for me in my life as a traveler, as a nomad, as somebody living abroad, and you can join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account can help you out on the road at wise.com slash travel. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com slash travel, or download the app. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. And I know people say that you you go do travel in order to, you know, sort of accumulate stuff, either literally stuff, souvenirs or experiences. But I think it's the opposite. I think you travel, or at least I do, I travel to shed myself and lighten my load and to unburden yourself. This is the, the tricky thing about happiness is it is a byproduct of a life lived well. I call people like Jared hedonic refugees. And they are refugees, people who are moving to another country not for economic opportunity or to escape political oppression or anything like that, but simply because they, they sense that they'll be happier there. And I know the Dalai Lama says, grow where you're planted, and I think that it applies to most of us, but not all of us. I think there are some people who need to transplant themselves somewhere else. Those were clips from the wonderful conversation you're going to hear today with Eric Weiner. We explore many of the themes in his book, the Geography of Bliss, where he takes readers across the globe to investigate not what happiness is, but where it is. You'll hear about Eric's experience living in India and working as a war correspondent covering the rise of the Taliban in Afghanistan, what it was like for him to walk away from a successful career at NPR to write this book, and his best advice for you if you're leaving behind a career you enjoy to pursue something else. Why your unhappiness is beautiful and essential to your happiness, why being, quote, expectations-free may be the best way to travel, Eric's rule of thumb for how much time to buffer into a destination visit, why coming home may be the most important part of the travel experience, and can you really get away from yourself when you travel? All of that, plus much more. I'm also going to share my two biggest takeaways from this book, one of which has made a huge impact on my life and how I think about it, and a shout-out to somebody in this listening community who is diving headfirst into a new adventure in life, all because he just got curious. I love this story, and I'm excited to share it with you. And plenty more coming your way right now. So buckle up, strap in, grab your favorite beverage, relax. Thanks for being here, and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is 
the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. I am beyond thrilled to share this conversation I had with you today. Eric is an incredible guy, funny as well. He's, of course, a New York Times bestselling author whose books have been translated into more than 20 languages and an award-winning journalist. So much to talk about around happiness, which is a simple concept in principle, yet complicated in reality, right? It's something that we can assess about ourselves. What is our level of happiness? Is this something that's driving our decision-making right now? Are we leaving a job because we are unhappy or unfulfilled or we think we can be more content doing something else? And in this case, maybe being somewhere else. That's what Eric's talking about in the geography of bliss. How does happiness change around the world based on the places you have your physical body, whether you've grown up there or you're moving through a place or living there? And it's fascinating to me that happiness, although it's been debated for a long time in philosophy, it hasn't been researched for very long. In fact, I went on to the Erasmus University of Rotterdam website. Uh, it's eur.nl. And this is the Erasmus Happiness Economics Research Organization, or eHero for short. And they said on their website, quote, empirical research on happiness started in the 1960s in several branches of the social sciences. So it hasn't been studied from a scientific perspective for long. They even have a graph here showing the amount of scientific publications on happiness by year, and it's just a big upward slope. It's like a skateboard half pipe kind of slope. And that's what's happening. So it's all pretty new in terms of the scientific community in the grand scheme of things. But as I mentioned, philosophically, this has been a topic that's been discussed for thousands of years. And I'd say Quite often on this show, as well as it relates to travel, a lot of times, as I mentioned, this could be a motivator for creating a life of travel or building a lifestyle around travel because travel is something that makes us happy, makes us content. Now, the question is why? <laughs> and how do the places that we visit maybe play into that? And why are certain countries happier than other countries and what can we learn from those countries and take home with us and implement into our own lives and on and on. It's a deep topic just from one word, happiness and the exploration of that within the global context, within the traveler's context. You'll hear a wonderful discussion all around that today. Stick around on the back end as well. I want to give a shout out to somebody in this listening community. And also at the end of the interview, I share my two biggest takeaways from Eric's book, which I highly recommend you read. Now, without further ado, let's slip and slide into the interview. This is me and Eric having a chat, and I will see you on the other side, my friend. Well, I'm honored to have you here and that you took the time to, to be on the show. 
it's fair to say that you're one of my new favorite authors after after reading the book. You know, it's the highest compliment when I read The Geography of Bliss. And then right afterwards, I went and bought two of your other books immediately. So then that's like, okay, <laughs> you know, there's something good going on there. I appreciate that. It's good to hear. Absolutely. I know you say that your obsession really, and to use your quote, is the intersection of places and ideas. And it is at the intersection, I believe, where the most fascinating aspects of life unfold, be it our search for happiness, wisdom, or creative expression, all of which kind of tie into your book. So we're going to hit on a lot of themes today. I'm going to start by using an interviewing hack that you actually suggested from your uh, war correspondent days which I do want to talk about. You said in the book, I've conducted hundreds of interviews. I've interviewed kings and presidents and prime ministers, not to mention heads of terrorist organizations like Hezbollah. Yet sitting here across from this kindly Dutch professor who looks like Robin Williams, I'm stumped. I resorted to an old trick employed by journalists and women who want to put a date at ease. You just asked him to tell him about yourself. So I'm going right. to ask you the same thing. Tell me about yourself. <laughs> I'm turning it around on you, man. That's my, that's my <laughs> trick. You can't use my tricks. Those are, those are copyrighted, um, okay. patented. Um, I'm going to punt it right back to you and, and say, um, could you be a, a, a little more specific? What, what, what do you want to know about me? <laughs> well, everything. No, it, it was so hard to kind of figure out where to start with you because you've done so much in terms of uh, your career and travel. A lot of the ideas you've discussed in the book, of course, which I want to dive into, you know, maybe starting a bit chronologically might make sense. I know you were living in, in India in the 90s. So I'll back up to when I was five years old. Does that go far enough back for you? And Let's go I, all the way back there. Let's do I, it. <laughs> I decided I was going to run away from home. Unlike, you know, I imagine a lot of five-year-olds think they're going to run away from home, but I actually pulled it off and got like a mile or two or three miles from my house in Baltimore. Um, and um, that's pretty far for a five-year-old, far enough that my parents were freaking out and and the cops were called. But I was just obsessed with this desire to to see what was around the next corner and to keep going and you know you could argue i was running away from something um, a year after my escapade my parents did divorce so maybe there was some unhappiness in the house uh, but i might have been running or walking to something or both um and that's sort of been the dynamic throughout my life i'm not going to take you through year by year because this will be a 10-hour podcast interview. But but that has been a dynamic through my life, running throughout my life, running away from something and running to something and using travel as a, a means to, to be a better version of myself, I would say. Um, travel and writing are the two ways that I, you know, my, my wife likes to say I'm better on the page and wiser on the page than I am in person. And I'm, I think I'm better on the road than I am when I'm stationary. Um, so that, that's been a, a dynamic throughout my life. In what ways do you think you're better on the road? I mean by that? Uh, I think I'm lighter, um, not physically lighter. I still have to lose 10 pounds, but um, emotionally and mentally lighter. And I know people say that you, you go do travel in order to, you know, sort of accumulate stuff, either literally stuff souvenirs or experiences. But I think um, it's the opposite. I think you travel, or at least I do, I travel to shed myself and lighten my load and to um, 
unburden yourself because when you're on the road, you only have so much stuff with you. You know, you, you you've got a few books, you got a change of clothes. Um, even if you're a heavy packer, it's you're not taking your you're not a turtle, you're not taking your whole house with you. Um, so y- you just have less stuff. And I love the the hotel experience. I happen to be speaking to you this morning from a hotel room, which is uh, about a quarter of a mile from my house, which sounds weird, but I, I've had a sewage problem, which I won't bore you with or, or shock you with. So the water company put me up in a hotel and I immediately just felt lighter when I walked in the hotel room because it's not, it's not my stuff. It's not my furniture. I've got, you know, well, six or seven books with me that I've been reading, but I can ignore all the others and I can focus on your questions and they're lots of towels, way more towels than anyone ever needs. What's with that? Just lots of like <laughs> five hand towels, four bath towels. It's like yeah. they're so you never have to worry about a towel in a hotel room too. So for all these reasons um, and more, um, I think I'm a better person on the road. Isn't it funny that you can get that same feeling just a quarter mile from your house? Whatever. Yes, I think I'm going to have you know? to write about this actually because I've been thinking <laughs> about it. That um, and it's weird to be staying in a hotel room so close to your house because, like, you go into hotel travel mode when you check in. Like, oh, I'm in a new place, and you know, I almost was going to go to the front desk and say, "Can you recommend some local restaurants?" And I'm like, "Wait a second, I know all the <laughs> local restaurants. I live here." So it it gives you the chance to be a tourist um, in your own town. Um, which is pretty cool and, and something I recommend. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's something on some level, all of us had, have had to embrace over, you know, the pandemic times and everything kind of, I mean, at least for people who love travel, it's, it's a nice way to kind of try to have that travel mindset without going anywhere. Yes. And, and there are, you know, great thinkers through the ages, um, you know, an Indian poet named Tagore who lived in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, and he advocated this. He advocated just consciously trying to see your hometown through the eyes of a foreigner, through the eyes of a foreign tourist. And so, I mean, that that's the thing about travel is you don't, it's not about the mileage, it's about the vision, you know, it's about what, what you're seeing or what you're not seeing. So my theory about one of the reasons why travel can be so therapeutic for a lot of people, you know, it's not the energy vortices, it's not, you know, the food or the air quality or the distance from home. It's that you've sort of given yourself permission to reinvigorate your senses and to, to see things freshly. Yeah. Why is that so hard to do in sort of routine based regular life? You know, that's a good question. I think we, you know, we we get numb to the familiar and I, I don't think they say familiarity breeds contempt, but really familiarity breeds numbness. Um, it's not that we hate where we are. We just stop to, to see it and to hear it and to smell it. It is possible, as I said, to you know, stay in a hotel a quarter mile from your house and to experience your hometown with fresh eyes. But it's, it's just a lot easier to get on an airplane and go far away to something that truly is different. Um, and it's a way of sort of short-circuiting that numbing factor, that numbing phenomenon of, of familiarity. And and that's, I think, the, the real value of travel. Part of it is, is, at least to me, is also like sometimes there's freedom within just 
not having an identity in some ways. You know, when, when you're traveling, you land somewhere like nobody knows who you are, or what you've done. And you're just what, kind what of cri- what crimes you've committed, what state yeah, you're wanted yeah. in, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, in some cases, yeah. So hopefully not in yours, but <laughs> no. And, and that, that is true. And that's why you can make a fresh start in a new place. Um, you, you know, they, they, you know, people say, oh, you know, you're still wherever you go. There you are. You can't get away from yourself. I don't think that's true. I think you can get away from yourself or at least from one version of yourself. And you go to a new place. And as you say, you're right. People don't know you. Um, you can try on a different persona. You can get that that fresh start. Um, it, it's, it's the blank sheet of paper in front of you and you can write whatever you want on it or paint whatever you want on it. Yeah. Do you find there are different versions of you on the road when you travel around? Like, do you get to some of these destinations and, and a part of you sort of swoops into your body and takes over? Or? <laughs> um, yeah, I become Shirley, a uh, 22-year-old lap dancer. No, um, that's not true. Um, I I don't know where that came from. You know from. what I mean, though, from, from an identity perspective? It, I just become less neurotic, I would say. And I, I don't worry about things the way I, I worry about them back home. Um, time, you know, I think that you're, for me at least, the sense of time changes on the road. It just becomes more expansive. Um, there doesn't seem to be this great shortage of time that there is when I'm back home, when I'm on the road. The, the days seem longer in a good way. You know, ironically, I'm, I'm able to do nothing do more no, more nothingness on the road than I am at home. Um, I'm not one of those um, see everything, do everything travelers. Um, I like I like to always build in a buffer when I travel. I estimate how much time I need in, say, Reykjavik, Iceland, and then I'll add on automatically 20 25% to that. And I never, ever regret adding on that extra buffer of time. My sense of time changes, uh, my sense of who I am, I'm, but I'm, you know, still myself. I, you know, it's it's you know, we're all different versions of ourselves all the time. We're all recreating our, ourselves, and you know, as you may know, science tells us that every seven years we're literally a new person because all the cells in our bodies have have died and regenerated. Um, so, so we're doing this all the time anyway. That the process of things just accelerated on the road and. You know, and usually for a good way. You know, there are cases of people who become mass murderers when they travel or whatever. But for the most part, um, I think most people, um, I don't know how how you feel, Jason, that if you're a a better version of yourself on the road um, and a worse version when you're cooped up in your... Look very looks like a very nice little um, attic in in Oslo. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I, I can definitely relate to the... When you said lightness, that has a that word has a feeling to me, right? It's like a, a almost a, the lifting of of the sort of burdens of daily responsibility. And you know, I found that I recently took a trip to London, and just you know, I have a family and two kids and everything, and just not having that massive responsibility of of making sure two people don't somehow like kill themselves every day on accident, you know? Right. <laughs> it's just it's called uh, parenthood. Yeah. Yeah. Just that is, Ooh, and that's just a, uh, you know, you just, sometimes you need to kind of take a lot up, but then the load comes off in different ways. Like, like you said, I love, I love that, uh, you know, a lot of travelers do get accused of 
running away from something or their problems or whatever. I like your reframing of kind of like running to something. And as I said, it might be both. I mean, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, and, and you know, when I hear that, I get a little bit angry because you know that, Oh, you're just, you're traveling, you're running away from something. Well, yeah, maybe I am, you know, like if the, the building that I'm in is on fire and I'm like running away, but what are you running away from? Like the building's on fire, you know, I'm going to where the building's not on fire. So running away from, you know, bad things is, is, is good. Actually, it's a good instinct and running to something is good. It's the only becomes a problem in my mind when you're running away from something that, um, you should be working through and working out. And, and of course the thing about travel is for most people, it's not a permanent condition. Yeah. There are some, you know, lifelong full-time travelers and we can talk about that, but I think that presents its own problems. But most people, you know, you return, you buy a round trip ticket, you know, and you come back and you hopefully come back with that better version of yourself intact um, for a while, at least, you know, that you, you know, the idea is to keep traveling even when you're back home in the sense that that self-transformation is still taking place. It, it's tricky, though, I admit. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why. We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. It kind of makes me think about the sort of cliche of, you know, I'm going to travel the world to find myself. And I think there's something to that. At the same time, if you have... 
that intention or that awareness around the trip on the one hand, I feel like it can be a positive thing because you're kind of going with this intention of openness and, and learning and maybe like a beginner's mind type of approach. On the other hand, maybe you could look at it as, as detrimental because it's maybe putting a lot of pressure on, on this trip to be this sort of magical pill. You know what I mean? Right. And, and I've, I've written about the, the dangers of expectations and especially when it applies to travel. So in, in my research into happiness, you know, I've discovered, concluded that, that expectations are, are one of the enemies of, of happiness, that the greater our expectations for anything, you know, a, a new job, a, a journey, um, the less likely we are to, to derive pleasure and happiness from it. So if you say I'm going around the world to find myself, that puts an awful lot of pressure on both the world and yourself, you know? <laughs> I think the best travel, in fact, the best way of living is expectations-free. It doesn't mean you don't do anything. It doesn't mean you just sit in your apartment, you know, eating Doritos and watching television. It just means that you don't have any one expected outcome. So if you say I'm going around the world to find myself, you know, that implies that if you don't find yourself, whatever the heck that means, that your trip is a failure. Um, and so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend framing a, a journey in those terms. But at the same time, you can also use travel as a tool for personal development and transformation, of course. So I, I think that's the that's the outcome. That's the the side effect. You know, you you travel with an open mind, open heart, and you know that you want something to be different, but you don't know what that different is. And um, and and I think that a coming back a transformed, happier person is the side effect of the experiences you have. It's not the objective. It's a, it's a, sometimes can be a subtle distinction, but I think it's an important one. I love what you said there. Yeah. Not knowing what the, the different is. I think that's one of those things that reveals itself sometimes during the trip, sometimes, you know, years afterwards or something. Right. Right. The, the running away, running to something, some of the, the things we've already touched on bring to mind to me, just a duality as a concept. And, and this is something that, you know, I know in Eastern philosophy, they, they seem to be able to kind of pull off holding that duality and, and like I don't know, maybe understanding it. Whereas I think us from the Western mindset kind of like maybe struggle with duality as, as a concept. That something can be uh, this and that at the same time. Um, um, we do. And, and the Indians in particular, as I've written, are very good at um, holding two opposing ideas in their head at the same time without their head exploding. Right. Um, our head tends to explode. Yeah, I mean, how do you reconcile some of those? Uh, you know, I know in in the book, you know, one of the things you said is, uh, you know, we want to achieve our happiness and not just experience it. Perhaps we even want to experience unhappiness or at least leave open the possibility of unhappiness in order to truly appreciate happiness, which I, I totally agree with. I think you kind of have to have both, you know, you can't have the dark without the light kind of thing. I don't know. I have a hard time sometimes reminding myself that it should be, or it, it, it's both, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's not, it, it is partly that you can't have the dark without the light, but it's also that the darkness has value and even beauty in itself. The darkness is not there merely to make us appreciate the light. It's also there because it has its own beauty, as if you've ever 
been on a completely dark night and looked up at the stars or um or just consider our emotional reaction to beautiful sad music um you know we we find beauty in that so so what what i was saying there is that we i was pushing back against this sort of smiley face version of happiness that we need to feel pleasure and happiness all the time um there's a place for some grit and difficulty in our lives and and at the end of the book i do spoiler alert sort of conclude that you know, maybe happiness is not the end all and be all that we should be seeking, but something bigger, like a, a flourishing life or a meaningful life. And you can lead a meaningful life um, that is not necessarily a happy one all the time, or even most of the time. You know, if you're, if you ask a, a single working mother of three, you know, are you happy? She'll likely say you're asking the wrong question. You know, I'm needed. There's meaning in my life, but am I happy? I'm not so sure. Just staying on the whole duality concept, I, I always find it's a bit of a struggle to kind of toe the line between, you know, striving, being ambitious versus kind of being content with where you are and what you have. And that can relate to whatever, I mean, family, career, those types of things. What do you? Well, I mean, there's a, a great little lesson in um, the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu poem. Um, where Lord Krishna is saying to Arjuna, Arjuna is a, a, a warrior. He's about to go into battle and he's nervous. He doesn't want to go. And and Lord Krishna says basically, and I'm summing up here, you should put 100% effort into what you're doing, but have a precisely 0% invested in the outcome. So it's not the striving that causes our misery. <laughs> um, it makes us suffer. It is the pegging our efforts to one particular outcome. You're doing a podcast. So Jason does a podcast and you put your effort into it. You prepare for your interviews. You clearly are prepared. You put your heart and soul into it. And then, you know, like most podcasters, you want a big audience and the bigger, the better. And maybe you have some number in mind of what is the number of downloads or reviews or whatever the metric is that will make you happy, that you will say that's a success. Well, you can't really control that outcome as much as we think we like to think we can control it. All you can do is put your effort into it. And, um, you know, as Lord Krishna says, you have the rights to the, you know, to your labor, but not to the fruits of your labor. That's, that's outside your control. How do you manage that as a, a writer, as a creator? It's hard. It's really hard because, um, you know, there's all, you're always, there's always that tendency to compare yourself to, to other writers. There's always someone more successful, more famous, more whatever. And we, we tend to compare ourselves to, to those people who are one or two rungs above us and ignoring the fact that there are people 50 rungs below us. Um, and it really is, you know, a crapshoot, you know, writing a book, publishing it, seeing how it does. Um, you know, you, you hear stories about, you know, famous books that, you know, the initially were rejected by 17 or, or 170 publishers before they were published, you know, breaking through is you, you do your best, but there are no guarantees. And you, you know, you can drive yourself crazy pegging your happiness to one particular outcome. And I write for myself. I know that sounds, you know, maybe contrary to the advice you may have received, you know, know your audience and write for your audience. I write for myself and then I 
hope that, you know, me being a somewhat intelligent sentient being, that other somewhat intelligent sentient beings will find meaning and and find some joy in, in my words. Mm. Yeah, I love that. It's a audience of one, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it is. It is yourself. Because I think the difference between writing a book or anything versus, you know, designing a product for sale, you know, when you're designing a product for sale, often marketing people will say, well, you know, we need to do audience surveys, find out what the audience wants, and then, you know, the consumers want, and then give it to them. That may work, you know, with, with a notebook or sunglasses or something, but I, I don't think it works with writing because people people don't know what they want. There was nobody saying, God, you know, I really would like to read a book about some grumpy, you know, journalist who goes around the world looking for the happiest places. That's what I want. Nobody says that. Nobody, you know, says that. And yet I deliver it. And apparently a lot of people wanted it. Right. Yeah. How, how can you know? Right. So in that way, it's just being kind of true to yourself, going back to what you said, you know, along those lines, you, you worked as a war correspondent, which is, I have, this is fascinating to me because I've, you know, you know, that's a job, but maybe I'm speaking for myself or just a lot of people in the audience, but it's like, you never actually get to meet and talk to a war correspondent, right? Or at least I don't. Well, to, to be clear, I was, a, I was a foreign correspondent by choice and a reluctant war correspondent because that was part of the job. Um, I was never one of those people who was drawn to war and conflict like a moth to the light. Um, but if you're a foreign correspondent, you're, you're just, that's what you do. Not all the time, but a lot of the time is, you know, if they're people killing other people on a large scale in your vicinity, that becomes the story you cover. Um, and I, I never felt like a perfect fit for that job, that part of the job, at least. I mean, I, I, I was a kind of, journalist who wanted to go off and do the the feature story about Mother Teresa or something like that. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I want to hear more about this because you were working for National Public Radio right. and living in India. What was it like kind of being thrusted into the, the uncomfortable parts of that job? I mean, how did you... It was... Well, well living in India, and we're going back a few years here, um, is was amazing. It was the the best three years of my life. Um, everything was new and raw and I'd, I'd never fresh. I'd never stepped foot in India and I picked up and moved there, which was pretty crazy. It was, we talked about travel and it's, it's power to transform us. I think those three years really transformed me. It also meant covering Afghanistan. Um, just before the Taliban took over in the 1990s, while they were in power, I went to Afghanistan and, and after they just after they lost power after the 2001 i was there again and and that was difficult you know um a bit of a chicken when it comes to being shot at and things like that well i mean it's really not for everybody man <laughs> and yet i did it and um the thing is though and, and i with with all due respect and i really do respect my colleagues who are still doing this and are out there covering still afghanistan 20 some years later it's still in many ways, the same story, which is terribly sad and tragic. But um, but I, wars are kind of provide their own drama. You know, you don't have to you don't have to work to get the listener's attention or the reader's attention. It, it's war. There's there's immediate drama, 
and it kind of writes itself in that way. And, you know, I was more interested in the stories that um, treated the world not as this, you know, inventory of calamities, but as, as what I call a laboratory of ideas, of good ideas, you know, you know, Petri dishes, you know, trying uh, micro loans in, in, in Bangladesh, a story I covered, or, um, you know, some, you know, spiritual guru in India and, and what's he up to and just all these experiments going on around the world um, on a much broader scale than we just see in my home country, the U.S. I mean, you know, that's like, you know, being a scientist and limiting yourself to one particular laboratory doing one kind of study when there are all these other other labs and other Petri dishes with all kinds of experiments going on. Why would you not want to just embrace that? What did attract you to the, that career? Was it was it a combination of the travel and, and the journalism or was it like sort of the travel first and let me see what types of jobs I can that uh, travel with? Well, I mean, I, me? I, I graduated from college with a pretty worthless degree in English literature. Um, <laughs> well, you, you are know, using that, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Well, that's true. No marketable <laughs> skills uh, other than I could craft a sentence. Um, and this, you know, fierce desire to see the world, preferably with someone else paying for it. So. <laughs> Being a foreign correspondent seemed like uh, uh, the perfect fit, and it took me a few years to get there, but I got there, and then I left, which we can talk about, and that's that's the, the hardest thing in life. One of the hardest things is, and I think this is a line from the from the New Testament somewhere, actually, is letting go of things not meant for you. That's a lesson I've learned over the years the hard way, that, you know, it, it's easy to walk away from a terrible job or terrible marriage or a terrible, you know, business, whatever. It's something that's almost right, but not quite right. And, and, and walking away from that, you know, because if you're clutching on to the almost right thing, you have no room in your hands for the just right thing. And, and that, that was a, a big move I made. Tell me a little more about that time in your life. What, what were you debating what was sort of so the- i'd been a, a foreign correspondent for for a good decade and i could have kept going um and it was like i said in many ways satisfying i was traveling the world uh, someone else's dime i was telling stories i was meeting the most interesting people in every country i went to um i had you know an audience and and as a friend called me a mini celebrity at npr with an emphasis on the mini um, and it, and it was very good, but it, it started to feel a little repetitive. Like I would go to the Philippines or somewhere to cover a coup d'etat and it seemed an awful lot like the 10 previous coup d'etats in other, in other places. There were, there was a sameness to the story, um, wherever it was, because, you know, journalism does work off of a, a template and that template doesn't really change. It's, wars and famine and disease and you know occasionally a feel-good feature story and i wanted to i felt the need to break free of that and in in two ways if i can one was uh to get more personal to insert myself into the story which you're discouraged from doing really as a journalist um to be funnier which again you're largely discouraged from being a journalist especially a foreign correspondent there aren't many funny foreign correspondents um 
And the the third thing, which is really the biggest, I think, is I I wanted to view the world in a more positive, optimistic way. And that is not something journalism does very well. There is a movement out there called Solutions Journalism, which I fully support. I think it's terrific. But it's still pretty much a fringe movement. For the most part, journalism still focuses on problems of the world, not potential solutions. And I was interested in the goodness of the world. And that's, uh, I think, probably the main reason why I I left daily journalism about a dozen years ago now, and I haven't looked back. Hmm. So it's... A big part of that, yeah, just what you're kind of surrounded with on a day-to-day basis over a period of years just sort of adds up to... Yeah, it kind of seeps into you. And, and you know, I'll be honest here, I've, I, I was already and still am someone who wrestles with depression, have all my life. And, you know, it can drag you down after a while. You know, you're surrounding yourself with some pretty depressing stuff. I wanted to turn that on its head and, and go in a different direction. So what was the first thing coming out of that that you did? Uh, well, I, I, le- I, I came up with this idea to, um, to travel the world for a year um, instead of looking at the most miserable places to find the happiest places. And that was the first project. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I always wanted to, to write a book and I had all these ideas and you know, some writers don't have enough ideas. Others have too many. I fall into the latter camp. I just would have too many ideas and they were all pretty good but they were like the almost right idea, right? And they weren't just right. And, um, you know, I was sitting in a, in a, uh, apartment in Almaty, Kazakhstan, and actually not on assignment, but adopting our daughter, Sonia, um, who was then nine months old. And my wife and I were spending a couple of months in Kazakhstan going through a pretty long process. And we had lots of time on our hands when we weren't, you know, visiting our soon-to-be daughter. And so my wife left for like an hour one day and came back and I had the proposal for the geography of bliss written out. Oh, and really? she said, she said, that's it. That's the book. And yeah. that was it. And then and then it became a longer proposal and then it became a a book. And the, and 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 it but it started with that germ of that idea. You know, what if I looked at the world um, through this happiness lens and looked at happiness through this global lens. What would, what would that look like? And it's really quite nothing short of a miracle to have this idea in, in an apartment in Almaty, Kazakhstan turn into a book that is wildly more successful <clears throat> than you could have imagined. It's been translated into 24 languages and I don't want to just sound like I'm bragging here, but I'm just explaining that it's, it's a miraculous thing you know, I'll never forget when it was actually when my my editor and publisher came to DC where I lived to to visit me before the launch of the book, and he had one of the first what they call galley copies. This is a pre-publication copy of the book, but it looks like a real book, you know, paperback form. And he handed it to me, and I, I got teary eyed, and and I noticed he noticed my reaction too. And he's, you know, now the head of Simon and Schuster. He's been in the business a long time, but I think he he appreciated that that pleasure that a first-time author takes in seeing something that was just a little crazy idea in Almaty, Kazakhstan, turn into a physical book. Not a Kindle, I'm sorry, but a physical book. And that, I'll never forget that moment. That's amazing. It's pretty spectacular when you can 
kind of pinpoint the birth of something like that and then look back and really see what it turned into. And, and I'm sure, I mean, I can imagine, I guess, that moment for you just hearing some of your backgrounds also, you know, where, where you kind of came from and, and having to sort of have the confidence in yourself to make the leap to the next thing, even though you built up a name and a career. Right. And- it's so easy to stay comfortable and to do something, you know, not, I'm not talking about the, the mind numbing bureaucratic job that you have to escape. I'm talking about the, a job that's good, you know, that's actually satisfying. That's that on many ways, as I said, almost right, but not quite right. And walking away from that, that's, that's tough. Um, but I think it's necessary. And then, and then, you know, in my case, I feel like I'm, I'm just where I should be talking to you about this, um, right now, right here. And, um, so no, no regrets. What is your best advice to somebody in that situation who's listening and they're like, holy crap, that's me, Eric. That's me. I'm in that place right now. I've got the golden handcuffs, man. What's the key? How do I, how do I navigate this? Uh, everybody well, has got they their need own... my advice given the, the great resignation that's taking place here right now. A lot of people are re, um, configuring their lives and readjusting their sites. And, um, yeah, I think people are doing just fine. It's scary and liberating, but more, more liberating, uh, than scary. And, and it's not just one moment where you, you know, that dramatic moment where you quit and walk away from the golden handcuffs. It's, you know, it's what you do afterwards and it's, a and there, and there will be ups and downs and I've had ups and downs. My first book did phenomenally well. My second book was pretty much a flop, you know, but I kept going and, you know, I'm working on my fifth right now. So it, it's not a straight line trajectory. Just so we can dive in to the book a little bit, The Geography of Bliss, I was wondering if you could just give listeners an overview of the framework within which you you traveled the world looking for happiness and kind of how the book is structured. So as I said, I, I treat the world as a, as a laboratory of ideas. So this big idea was what is happiness and where is happiness? How, you know, what, what, what do other countries know about happiness that perhaps we Americans do not? What lessons can we learn? Um, and also, where are, what interesting happiness experiments are going on? If, if for instance, you believe that money can buy happiness, uh, then surely the, the wealthiest country in the world on a per capita basis, uh, Qatar in the Persian Gulf, they should be happy, right? Well, let, let's see how that experiment's going. Or, you know, let's see how, um, what, what if you made happiness a, a national policy? as they do in Bhutan with gross national happiness. What does that look like? So it, it was partly a journalistic enterprise in that, you know, I was still had the, the mindset of a journalist and that I was, you know, talking to people and, and um, trying to uncover actual data about where the happiest places are. Um, but for a different end, I'm, I'm looking to show you what you can learn from these places. And so I went to, you know, seven, eight countries around the world with an open mind, um, but always through this happiness, wearing my happiness goggles, you know, and looking for for what people said and what they did about, you know, how they were happy or unhappy, uh, as the case may be, and um, inserting myself as a, you know, as a, 
interested investor in this project. Let's put it that way, because as I said, I've, I've wrestled with depression. I wanted to be happier and I'm a traveler and it seemed like a natural combination to, to, to fit these two together. What were some of the key insights coming out of that? I mean, if you, break, you can break it down by country or just, you know, sort of overall kind of takeaways. I, I know I have big, two big takeaways from the book that I'm going to share at the end, but um, I'd love to hear some of the things that kind of st- stuck with you over time, whether it's in individuals well, or this sort of Yeah, thing. that's a good question. Um, I mean, first of all, um, I was quickly disabused of the notion that I'd be traveling only to tropical paradises with palm trees and drinks with umbrellas in them. Um, those countries, these, you know, the Bahamas and Tahiti's of the world are, are not really the happiest. You know, we tend to associate that scene, that sort of setting with happiness. But in, in fact, that's not the case. The happiest countries in the world, statistically, because they, you know, they survey people around the world and, and ask them essentially on a scale of one to 10 overall, how happy are you? The happiest places to be, tend to be cold, dark places like um, Finland and Denmark and Iceland, which I write about. So that was a bit of a surprise, and it sort of made me think that, you know, a, a week's vacation in paradise is not necessarily paradise. It's not It's not sunny skies and beaches that make for a happy place. And I quickly discovered, well, maybe not so quickly, but I did discover that really happiness is not the, what, what I thought it was. It's not personal. In fact, I was in Bhutan, Himalayan country, sandwiched between China and India, and talking to a man named Karma. And it's it's always a good day, I think, when you when you meet a man named Karma. He clearly did something right in a previous lifetime. And uh, and I'm talking to Karma, and he says, Eric, I don't understand you Americans. You're always talking about your personal happiness. He said, happiness isn't personal. It's 100% relational. Now, at the time, I thought Karma was kind of exaggerating to make an, a point to the dumb American that, you know, using a big number, 100%, you know, maybe it's 50, 60 percent relational. But as I traveled and as I did more research, I discovered that karma was spot on. It is pretty much 100% relational. And it's a different way of looking at happiness. It's it's about um, our relations with other people. And it could be loved ones like family, it could be friends, could be the person, the barista you encounter at the coffee shop, you know, your relations like that. Um, and that that is hugely important. And an element of that is trust and trust is a sort of one non-negotiable when it comes to a happy place you need to have trust of one another um, switzerland lots of trust in that country and lots of, lots of happiness moldova which i visited um, perhaps the least happy country in the world statistically not a lot of trust lots of envy not a lot of trust um so that, that's one sort of main takeaway that I came away from, from my research and my travels. We'll be right back. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press, but I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This 
device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever zero to travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me, Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. Another thing that stuck with me actually came from, from Thailand, um, where, you know, they, they have expressions like my pen lie, which means, you know, literally never mind. Um, that not every, the notion that not every problem needs to be solved right then and there, that it can Wait, and I suppose this is a Buddhist idea, not coincident, coincidentally. Um, and they also have an expression in Thailand that translates as "you think too much," and and Thais do see see excessive thinking as a sign of mental illness. You know, which would make, yeah would make both of us, Jason, probably clinically insane. You know, um, I keep coming back to to that as well. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, quite a few things, um, because I, I met some remarkable people on the road. And and one reason I think I met them is, um, well, I followed the golden thread, as my friend called it, that you would, you know, say, if I were to go to, say, you know, Norway, I would say, Jason, you know, who should I talk to in Norway? And you just give me a long list to talk to these people. And you say, but really, that's the person you want to talk to. And I'd go to talk to Hans or someone in Norway. And Hans, who else should I talk to? And they give me names and you follow the thread and the thread works for me, at least I think partly because my, my intentions are, are good. And, and I think people I talk to sense I am not just being a drive by journalist, not just being transactional. Like I just want a tape cut or a quote from you. In fact, I, I've stopped using the word interview for um, the conversations I have with people when I'm researching my books, I'm having conversations I'm, I'm talking to them um, because in my mind, at least the term interview is transactional, you know, trying to get something from you, get you to reveal information or to say something smart and pithy. And then once I have it, we're done. Um, you know, I've, I've maintained friendships with quite a few people I've written about in geography of bliss and my other books. And, and that's nice. And I, that, that, that's a totally different orientation from being a journalist. I might steal that and start just, you know, hey, you want to have a conversation? That's what this is, right? I mean, that's what, that's what it's you about. Go. I think you, can, you, can, uh, you can borrow it. You don't have to steal it. <laughs> or you can steal it. I don't care. <laughs> I'll borrow it. I'll okay. take it on loan. Having the conversations and sharing them, there's so much value in that for all of us to just glean these different perspectives. And, and, and how you frame 
the question, frame the situation. Are we, is this an interview or is this a conversation? And a conversation implies it's two-way, right? And um, and with an interview, there's an interviewer and the interviewee. The conversation, there's just two conversers, right? On essentially equal plane. And and that's how I try to think of it. Hmm. Do you think that inserting yourself in the story, to use your words, I don't know if you call that gonzo journalism or whatever you want to call it, is, is that the sort of the thing that allows you to break that barrier and make it more of a conversation as opposed to you I know, mean, capturing I, the story? I mean, I believe, I believe the term comes from uh, Hunter L. Thompson um, and his gonzo journalism. You know, I don't, I don't love that phrase now. Um, I, I tend to think um, I'm, I see myself as a writer and not a journalist anymore. And as a writer, I can do whatever the heck I want, right? You know, and um, except make stuff up if I'm writing nonfiction, which I don't do. So I am not just inserting myself into the story or the conversation. I'm part of it. I'm trying to be part of it um, to varying degrees. You know, sometimes I step back and, you know, and let karma speak and, and, and quote him at length or tell his story. Um, but I can have what I find so liberating is I can have reactions to the people and places I meet. You know, I remember once I spent like, you know, two weeks in, in Afghanistan reporting on what's going on there. Came back to my base in Delhi, filed all these reports, and then some friends back home said, oh, I heard your stories from Afghanistan. What's it really like there? And I'm thinking, shoot, if you don't get a sense of what it's really like there from my reports, what's what's the point? And so what I try to do now is all that stuff that journalists used to talk about over drinks at the bar, you know, I try to put into my writing, you know, so that it's, it's unfiltered and it's, it's, no one's going to ask what's it really like in, in Bhutan or Iceland that I'm able to convey that, I hope. I mean, I think it's important to have a healthy skepticism for, for a lot of media, I guess I would say. I mean, I don't mean to be bashing media and I hope that's not how I come across. I'm just saying that it's a different it's a it's a different approach, and I've I've stepped off that train and onto another train. Yeah, I mean, we know that the facts are that you know clicks and ads and things like that is what pays for what pays the salaries of these companies. So there's an element of uh, well, we don't have to get into all that, right? <laughs> then, then we'll we'll, we'll go down that, that rabbit hole. We'll never get out. <laughs> we'll never emerge. Right. One of the things that stood out for you that also stood out for me was what you shared from Thailand, which is the, that idea of, you know, we think too much. Right? So we're both insane, like you said, jokingly, but I, you know, sometimes I, I won't, I wonder that. And uh, I'm really attracted to the Eastern philosophy for that reason. I feel like there's some kind of, um, you know, there's something valuable about zenning out, if you will. But it's funny because I'm, I always have a hard time imagining, like, I wish I could just insert myself into somebody else's brain who thinks that because I think a certain way and then I'm trying to incorporate some of those concepts into my thinking instead of just thinking that way because I'm born in it you yeah. know I mean <laughs> people who meet the the Dalai Lama and I've only met him from a distance um and they, they come to him and say you know I want to become a Buddhist and and they're they're Jewish or Christian or whatever and he actually advises them to grow where they're planted and, and that's the, I think the beauty of Buddhism and, uh, and other Eastern religions is it's not all or nothing. You can remain Jason and, um, you know, and incorporate these practices like meditation into your life. Um, so that I find very beneficial. 
you know, I, I don't think the point is to become, I and mean, for some people it is to shave your head and become a monk and take the vows and, and that's fine. But for a lot of other people, it's to still be Eric or Jason, but again, to be a better version of ourselves, uh, not to be a new self, right? But to be a better version of yourself. And that's the key, I think. What What is your relationship with Bhutan, Bhutan? We're, we're just, we're just friends. It seems like you have something special going on there. No, actually, you to... I, would, I, would, I would say, what's that thing on Facebook you put? It's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated, yeah. I yeah, mean, because you run your com- writing workshops there, right? Well, I hope to. Um, you know, I've been running these writing workshops in the Himalayas the last uh, four or five years. Um, all of them in Kathmandu, in Nepal. Um, they've been terrific. But this year, but, well, in 2020, we... My business partner in this venture, James, and I were, were going to take it to Bhutan, and we had everything arranged, and then this little pandemic happened. We're hoping to do it again in May, um, or to reschedule it for May. Um, and yeah, and I also hope to be, that'll be teaching um, mainly foreigners, Americans mostly, but I'm also going to stay on and teach some young Bhutanese, or lead a workshop with some young Bhutanese uh, writers, which I'm looking forward to. I mean, it's a special place. I have not been back since I researched the book. It's it's tricky to get to. Well, I know one American who who married a Bhutanese person and has been living there all her most of her life and wrote a wonderful book called Married to Bhutan. Um, and she's you know immersed in the culture and being there. I, I just hold it up as an example of what if you know what if we just instead of making gross national product or gross domestic product, the be all and end all. We, we had this thing called gross national happiness. What would that look like? I mean, it's a, it's a wonderfully delicious, intriguing idea. And if you've ever read the book by James Hilton, the lost horizon about Shangri-La, um, you'll see the similarities to an extent. Um, it's just the, the closest I felt to being in something like Shangri-La to, to, to stepping out of our everyday existence into a place that's truly different. And it's not easy to find those these days. You know, there's, there's Starbucks everywhere, uh, McDonald's most places, and, you know, the convenience of jet travel has made us a little, you know, I've made, take, we've taken travel for, for granted, at least until the pandemic came along, and just assumed we could always go anywhere, anytime. And, you know, obviously that's not true. It's easy to kind of just assume that, well, of course, the, uh, you know, the economy is the driving force of everything, right? Like that's, of course, duh, you know, that everything's or, built or around that. Or the notion that. that economic growth is inherently good. Um, right, right. Know, As opposed to just like remembering it's actually a choice that we're all making. <laughs> right. And not all growth is good. If you have a tumor, you don't want that to grow. It's a work in progress in Bhutan, this this policy of gross national happiness, and they've been working on it for a while. Um, I think the the beauty of it is not necessarily in the execution, but frankly, in the idea that, that there could be another way. And what that other way looks like, we're still figuring out. You know, countries like the UK and France have, have dabbled in this uh, this area, you know, in Dubai, there is a ministry of happiness, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, so there are countries around the world that are trying to emulate Bhutan. And again, it's, it's the laboratory of ideas. This Petri dish in the Himalayas produced something quite remarkable. 
Yeah, because this is a government policy, this gross national happiness. And I mean, this kind of brings me to the question of if there's a happiness problem, right? If we, if we call it that, right? Let's say there's a happiness problem in America and depending on your perspective and, and where you are <laughs> in America and who you are, what you, you have your eyes open to or not, you can interpret that in different ways. But if there is a happiness problem in X, Y, and Z country, is it solvable? Is it a solvable thing with a with a policy, a government policy like this or some other way? I don't know if I'd frame it exactly as a happiness problem. Um, because this, this is the, the tricky thing about happiness is it, it is a byproduct of a life lived well. Um, and maybe this is why Bhutan has struggled so much is it, it doesn't work that well to have it as a, as a direct objective. I mean, it's very tricky. You know, the, there was a British philosopher, John Stuart Mill, who said back in the 19th century that happiness is, should be approached sideways like a crab, um, that you, you can't tackle it head on. So you can put policies in place with the intention of, you know, it's like a farmer, you know, you're, you're working land, you're watering your crops, you're harvesting, you're hoping that you get a good crop. But ultimately, it's not really up to you. And happiness sort of works the same way. Um, I mean, look, in, in the U.S., we consume more self-help books and produce and consume more self-help books in any country in the world, but we're not the happiest. Uh, in Thailand, a pretty darn happy place. They don't, they don't, you know, spend too much time thinking about happiness or thinking too much, apparently, about anything. Um, they're too busy just being happy. Um, so I realize that may sound strange from someone who wrote a book about happiness, but you can overthink this, too. And you, you you do these things that, that we know lead to happiness, but you don't just keep your eye on the target like, I want to be happy. Like if you woke up every morning, Jason said, I want to be happy today, that's probably not going to work because you're going to, that's just an idea of happiness. And what, what do you do then? Do you take a shower? Do you, do you go for a walk? I mean, it's more that you, yeah, you do things that, that are meaningful and and productive in the best sense of the word and connect you with other people. And then happiness is the by the side effect of this medication, yeah. basically a pleasant side effect. Hmm. I mean, do you think it's something that's teachable? If somebody's saying, Oh, well, I want, you know, more happiness or let's call it meaning or whatever in my life. Is yeah. This is the, so the, the blissologists, as I call them, the, the positives <laughs> There's a field known as, positive psychology. Um, it's the science of happiness. This is, this has been debated for a long time. Like, you know, or surely people or someone's born with a predisposition to happiness. And, and I, I'm of the the school that says that, that basically we're born with a range, you know, I'm probably never going to reach like, you know, Oprah levels of happiness, um, or wealth for that matter, um, or fame, <laughs> but, but I have a range and through the, my my actions and my thoughts and my my intention, I can either operate toward the very top of that range or at the bottom. Um, so, to answer your question, I think yes, that we can, to some extent, choose to be happier by choosing to do these things, um, but within that range. Um, that we we that uh, I'm not denying that genetics doesn't play a role. It does. But I think it's less of a role than we think. And I think the range is pretty, pretty broad. Hmm. Uh, let's go back to the idea of the geography 
of bliss, like literally the geography. Cause you had one line in the book that you were talking about this guy, uh, Jared, you said uh, over the years, I met so many people like Jared who seemed to be more at home, happier and happier living in a country, not of their birth. And then when you said the Dalai Lama thing, where you kind of should be sort of happy within where you grow again, they have the, the duality there maybe, but why are some people more at home or happier, more relaxed living? I call people like Jared hedonic refugees. And they are refugees, people who are moving to another country not for economic opportunity or to escape political oppression or anything like that, but simply because they, they sense that they'll be happier there. And I know the Dalai Lama says, grow where you're planted. And I think that applies to most of us, but not all of us. I think there are some people who need to, need to transplant themselves somewhere else. And Jared just fell in love with Iceland and one of those stopovers, you know, the cheap flights to, to uh to mainland Europe, um, and you know, like forty-eight hour stopover in, in Iceland, and he, so he forgot his three-week trip to to wherever he was in Europe, mainland Europe. Iceland's part of Europe, um, but Iceland stuck with him, and and he moved back, and he, he moved there, and he lived there, and he's happy there. And I've met people who have similar feelings about India or other countries where they were not born. Um, I think that's not the point of my book, though, is not that you should pick up and move to Iceland because, if first of all, if a bunch of unhappy Americans just picked up and moved to Iceland um, thinking they'd be happier there, they're going to dilute the happiness of Iceland, <laughs> bringing all this American unhappiness. That's one problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's it's not practical for a lot of people, and it's not even desirable. I think the, the, the point of my book is you can travel to these places, read about these places and imbibe their essence and their approach to happiness and bring it back home with you. Yeah. You can take it with you. Isn't that one of the best parts of having the privilege of traveling the world is to be able to then curate the best of the things that you love the most, whether it's, you know, for me, certain things might be about parenting or uh, just about a way a culture is, and then try to try to bring those things back home with you and incorporate. Yeah, them I mean that life. there are it's many stages of travel. There's preparing, there's traveling, but then there's coming home. Coming home is part of the travel experience, and maybe it's the most important part. Mm. Uh, one thing I loved about Iceland that really stood out to me from the book was this idea that they're happy because it's okay to fail. That 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 came out of of your chapter for me uh, because you, you mentioned uh, it's a place where there are more artists and writers per capita than than any other, and this uh, this guy Larus La I think I don't know how to pronounce his name said it's because of failure. Uh, failure doesn't carry a stigma in Iceland. In fact, in a way, we admire failures, and that to me said a lot. You know. Yeah. Well, in in, in the U.S., we we pay lip service to the notion of admiring failure, but it's only retrospectively, you know, the story right, about after they've conquered the mountain. Yeah. This, you know, yeah. this young, you know, upstart college dropout who, you know, started a company and, but failed 10 times, but now Mr. Jobs or Mr. Zuckerberg are doing very right. well. Thank you very much. Then we like the failure story. Not, not the, the people that are still in the garage tinkering in Iceland. <laughs> they like the guy who's still in the garage tinkering. Right. They, they, That's you know, beautiful. They, I mean, they're, they're Vikings at heart, you know, uh, and, and gen genetically too. And they, you know, they admire the noble failure, um, who doesn't go on to be a success. Um, but they fail. It's what you fail at that matters more than you, that you're failing. You're failing at the right thing. You're failing at something big and noble. And, and I think that's what the Icelanders admire. Mm. Just a few more for you. I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up 
technology and smartphones. <laughs> right. I was just wondering what your relationship is with the smartphone. It's complicated. Your, your, again, <laughs> that's all my an, relationships. They're all status. complicated. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it has to be part of the debate about happiness now, right? right? I've got a, a sixteen-year-old daughter who gives me a hard time because she thinks I'm on my smartphone more than she's on hers, and she might be right. I think she's of the, you know, digital native generation where. She doesn't feel as tethered to it. Um, it's it's a constant uh, struggle to, um, and I think this is especially true actually for people like myself who and your, yourself who work for ourselves. Um, uh, maybe you have a lucrative day job. I'm not sure, but um, okay. When you work for yourself, your your contact with the world is limited, so you're looking for feedback for encouragement for anything and and the phone sort of becomes that it becomes actually more important for um the self-employed like us i think um and there's the danger that you always turn to it you know writing is is hard um you know i had to get this program called freedom which i, I paid ten dollars freedom costs ten dollars by the way if you're wondering that freedom is not free it's only ten dollars and it, it blocks me from the internet for a period from 15 minutes to eight hours. And I'm thinking like, it's pathetic that I need this, but I do. It's successful um, for a reason, Eric, yes. right? <laughs> and so you know about freedom. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and, um, you know, um, the name people, says it all. People, exactly. People have high flying jobs. They don't, they don't need freedom because they're always connected. They're always on. It's that always that possibility of distraction from, from doing the serious work of writing or having a conversation like we're having. Um, I mean, I, physically turned my phone off before we started chatting and um i was just sitting there like this you know this artifact you know and and dead thing and, and good for I, I feel oddly liberated just looking at the black screen that's off um and this conversation reminds me i should do that more often so you know i'm just as distractible as the, as the next person i'm less distracted on the road um I'm less tethered to my phone on the road. Um, a, another good reason to travel is, you know, you just you're going to go through some digital detox on the road by necessity. You just you'll be on a different time zone from other people, which can be liberating in itself. Mm, absolutely, I get that every morning when everybody's sleeping, and I have. Uh, I love that. If you're in that part of the world in Europe, you know, you get that five, six, seven hours before the rest of the world wakes up and it feels like free time. It always felt that way to me. But then, of course, you get people contacting you at 10, 11 p.m. saying, you know, let's talk. That's the downside. Yeah, right. it's, it's a nice time to create, though. You have that. Right. I, I always enjoyed that. A couple selfish questions because I have to, you know, I mean, you're an established professional journalist. I've been doing it for a long time. Give me your best interviewing advice, man, or uh, or at least just your best conversations advice. Right, whatever right, right. We don't use here. the term interview, right? Right. So we're kind of. <laughs> I'm learning here. <laughs> um, it, it it it's a conversation. Um, so reframe it that way. You're you're having a conversation with someone. Um, you have some questions in mind ahead of time, but you're not going to stick to them necessarily. You have to be willing to follow the person you're conversing with to where they're going. If they're going on a tangent, you, you nudge them back. But if it looks like maybe a really interesting tangent or interesting direction, you have to be willing to go off script. 
and to go with it. Um, you know, your questions should not be longer than their answers, which some podcasters have a tendency to ask three, four, five minute long questions <laughs> for a 30 second response. You don't have that problem, but uh, some do. Sometimes um, I do. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's hard. You have to be just naturally curious about the other person. You have to care. And, and that's not like there's, I could give you a bunch of like gimmicks, like the placebo question, which is a question that just warms someone up. You don't really care about the answer placebo question, but, um, but you know, these are like techniques when really it's like, you have to actually care about the other person and what they have to say. And, and there's no substitute for that. I'm sorry if there's not like a bag of tricks for that. And no, but, but you seem that's, to care. So I don't think yes. you have a problem there. <laughs> no, that's wonderful advice. Thank, thanks for sharing that. Your writing is incredible, astounding. I love it. And uh, like I said, I'm a fan and I, I wanted to get your best advice for creative writing specifically <sighs> you have a good you have a way of kind of yeah bringing so, all these ideas together i, so, I don't know how you i do think it. the first the biggest hiccup people have with writing is they they think it should be easy they think it either will be easy or they think it should be easy and that's not true maybe because you make it look so easy no no but your that's, fault now <laughs> that's the finished that's the finished product you don't know how many right. revisions and you know hair ringing or head ring, whatever, some kind of hand ringing, ringing was what was going on. Um, and so my favorite quote about writing, and it's how I begin every one of my writing workshops is from Thomas Mann, the, the German novelist and writer. And, and he said, the definition of a writer is, is this, a writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people. A writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people. And when I tell people that quote, they sort of just exhale. It like takes the pressure off. Like, oh, this is supposed to be hard. Um, and it sounds crazy. Why would writing be harder for a writer than for a non-writer? Because the writer cares. The writer is invested in it. Um, so my first advice would be just get over this idea that that it should be easy. It's, it's hard. And it's just as hard in my fifth book as the first. The only difference is I sort of know that I'll get through it to, you know, that old famous saying, do you like writing? And the answer is I like having written. That's true. And my last piece of advice is I, I, when I was working on to bring it back to the geography of bliss, when I was working on it, you know, I'd never written a book, you know, I'd written articles, I'd written scripts for NPR, but I'd never written a book at all. And I was got nervous. I told a friend, you know, I said, look, I want to write a good book, you know, she said, stop with this good book nonsense. She said, just write an honest book. And I found that very liberating. Not to write well, but to write honestly. And um, if you write honestly, it will be good. Um, and, and I think that was, that was very good advice that I'll pass on. And it turned out great as well. I Thank will you say very much. Uh, two things I just want to share quickly. Uh, just a couple of my favorite takeaways from the book. I was going to do this later, but you're here and I want to share them with you. Um, the one, the one is when you were sitting on the hill in Switzerland and you said, maybe happiness is this, not feeling like you should be elsewhere, doing something else, being someone else. 
I think that's perfect for travelers, wanderers, nomads, especially, you know, people that are used to kind of roaming around. You're always kind of thinking about what's the next thing. And, you know, the that, hedonic the one, treadmill, one right? One line this from is, the book that seems to, to live on and is, is quoted the most often, perhaps. And, um, and I need to remind myself of what I've written, which I know sounds crazy. Like I would read that and say, oh yeah, that's good advice. Who said that? Oh yeah, I said that. So, um, I think it's true. And I think it's true of traveling as well that, you know, it's not seeing the next great site and, you know, checking things off your list. It's just, it's just being. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the second one that really, really impacted my life. I've been thinking about it a lot since I read it is, well, I should, let me share it first. You, you were talking about Jonas Salk, the inventor of the polio vaccine, who said when asked what the main aim of his life had been was to be a good ancestor. And that hit me really hard because it's a way to think about the the legacy you want to leave while essentially taking your ego out of the equation. Right. Cause you'll be gone. That's the thing about being an ancestor, you know, yeah. you'll, you'll be gone. Um, it's big thinking, and, but at the same time, like almost ego free, big thinking in many right, ways. Right. And I think that is quite good and, and quite true. Um, and to sort of widen your, your circle of, of awareness of, of your place in the world. And, um, you know, I think as people get older, they, they do start to, their ego becomes, can, can become more diffuse and, and they see themselves as, you know, um, not a distinct wave, but, you know, a wave that's part of a much bigger ocean and will return to the ocean. Um, so I, I think, um, that's what Jonas Salk was, was hinting at as well. Hmm. Well, Eric, thanks so much for your time today. The Geography of Bliss, of course, we, we that was the main topic. Uh, and it's a wonderful book. Can't re- recommend it highly enough. Also, you got plenty of other books out there that are wonderful. I, I do, and I'm working yeah. on more. Jason, can I put in a quick plug for my workshop, writing workshop in Bhutan? It's uh, dates are May 10th through 20th. Um, and you can find more information at ericweinerbooks.com. And it's open to all writers, including beginners, and it's a chance to work on your writing while seeing, I think, one of the most amazing places in the world. Mm. I I read about it and I was like, mm, can I? Can I? We, maybe you maybe you'll see me there. I don't, I don't know. Uh, there's Sign a chance. Up. Come on. <laughs> I'll put you down. Um, I'm putting you down for one right now. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. And we'll, of course, link up to your website in the show notes. You guys can find all that and some of Eric's other books. I just picked up The Socrates Express and Man Seeks God, another one you wrote. And yeah, just a lot of great stuff going on. I signed up for your newsletter as well. So Great. Thanks, Jason. I enjoyed the conversation. I hope you did. Thank you. Not the interview, the conversation. <laughs> Thank you very much. And let's do it again soon sometime. Come through Oslo. I'd like to do this uh, in person over a coffee or a beer or something. Be that sounds cool like an too. excellent idea. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> right. Take care. Bye-bye. There you have it, my conversation with Eric. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. What a privilege to read a book like The Geography of Bliss that just blows me away and then knowing I get to have a chat with the author and share it with you it's incredible it's really what makes me happy (laughs) to be able to have this podcast and share these conversations with you and with others all over the world thank you for being here and if you haven't gotten in touch yet 
Another thing that lights me up is when people reach out to say hi. You can always drop me a line. Jason at zerototravel.com is my email. And you can leave me a voicemail easily. There's a link in the show notes, or you can email it to me like this member of the community did. I want to play you a quick voicemail from DK in Singapore, who is making a big change, diving into a new life adventure. Here's DK. Hey, Jason. I am DK from Singapore. And I just wanted to let you know that your show has been such an inspiration for myself, right? Um, actually, it was, it was through your podcast that uh, I am planning to go to Estonia at the end of the year to study. Right, it was actually the episode with um, Jen Vermont. Then I think you guys were talking about going to Estonia to study, or maybe Estonia being one of uh, or Tallinn being one of the cities that she liked. And then I was like, hmm, interesting. I went to find out more, and it turns out that there is a course there that I really wanted to go to. So that should be happening this year. And also another thing is your your show really um, inspire or is inspiring me to actually start my own podcasting journey, and the idea is is it's still in the works. But the idea is, or at least the show is called Singaporeans Abroad, right? And the idea is just to talk to Singaporeans living um, in other countries, uh, just to give people or us at home a bit more perspective about living abroad, how we can go overseas and what are certain challenges that they face or what are certain uh, pros and cons, you know. But yeah, that's the idea. I'm still trying to work on it, but um, I think it was through your podcast that I built the idea actually. (laughs) So I would like to say a big thank you and uh, also, uh, yeah, I'm really appreciative of your podcast um, being so insightful and being so inspiring. And yeah, so thank you so much, Jason. (laughs) Thank you, DK, for taking the time to listen to the show and to drop me a line and a voicemail. I just love that you went with your curiosity. This is how I wanted to finish this show. We can't always know what's going to make us happy. You hear these stories all the time. You know, people might think that money will make them happy and then they win the lottery and they end up losing all their money or their lives end up miserable because maybe it makes things more complicated or whatever the case. You hear about people who have a lot of money who are not happy. You hear about people that switch careers that think they're going to be happy in their new career and it turns out that they miss their old career or they get out of a relationship and they realize they made a mistake. All these things happen all the time, all over the world. Trying to be our own judges of what's going to make us happy can be really hard. But I think one thing we can do is we can follow our bliss in some regard, to use a word from Eric's book, The Geography of Bliss. We can follow our bliss through our curiosity, right? If our curiosity is pulling us somewhere, is probably some element of happiness within that thing we're getting pulled towards, right? In DK's case, he was intrigued by the idea of living in another country, going to school in another country. He heard about it on the podcast. He decided to explore that curiosity, dive in, and found that there was a course that matched something he wanted to do. And now he's going in that direction. And with his thoughts around starting a podcast, same sort of thing, right? He's just being pulled towards it. 
And sometimes it's hard to follow our bliss. That sounds very extreme, right? I do think there's a way to sort of gently follow our bliss, to follow our curiosity and see where it takes us. I think often if we are curious about something that's, a, I guess, different than what we're doing, some kind of life change, and we're exploring that, there's something to that. In a way, we wouldn't probably be exploring it if we didn't think it was going to maybe add an element of happiness or contentedness to our life. So my thought is, let's keep getting curious, keep exploring that curiosity, see where it takes us. And when you decide to go somewhere with it, you know, it's one thing to read about a podcast, another thing to start one, for example, you just go in and then you have the experience. You can't really know what's going to make you feel more happy. I'm using air quotes, more content, whatever it is that we're searching for within that uh, until we actually do it. And then it's all about enjoying the process, right? Not necessarily the end result where we think that's going to take us, but the process of of creating. And in traveling, maybe it's just about enjoying the experience of where you are, wherever that may be, and not having those expectations. As Eric mentioned, being free of expectations and just once you get off and running, just enjoying the experience and taking it for what it is and taking from it what you will. And in the end, does it make you happier? Does it make you more content? That's for you to decide, of course. But we won't know until we go and actually do those things. So stay curious, be open, and be you. That's all we can all be, right? <laughs> all right, I'll leave you with a quote from Brahmajna Ma, who said, Without self-realization, no one can ever be content. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Have a wonderful day. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.